All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, as we pick up the next verses in our study in the book of Romans. We've been going verse by verse for the last several weeks, and we've come to chapter 4. The theme is good news. The book of Romans, it really shows us the answer for why things are broken in the world around us. It gives us, it gives us a certainty in an uncertain world. It tells us why things are the way they are, what God's plan is, and how they can be made right through the message of Jesus. So our theme verse, of course, is Romans 1 and verses 16 and 17. So why don't we read that together? I'd ask you to read those out loud with me. Ready, begin. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, in Romans 4, Paul actually picks up that, that you see that statement, the just shall live by faith. We've seen chapter after chapter, the first, the first section of the book really focuses on this idea of justification by faith. You say, well, well what does that mean? Well, you're going to have to go back and listen to some of the previous lessons. But this morning's message, we continue this theme of justification by faith, but we've seen it all the way through. And in your notes, you'll notice I, I gave you the references in chapter 1, verse 17, the just shall live by faith. In chapter 3, in verse number 28, it says, Therefore we conclude that a man is not justified, that a man, I'm sorry, is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. That's in Romans chapter 3. And now, of course, what we found last week is that faith counts for righteousness. Faith, in fact, look with me here in Romans 4 and look at verse number 1. What shall we say then? that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham, could you say these two words with me? Abraham what? Believe God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Faith counts for righteousness. Some of you might be like me, a little tired this morning, so I'm going to engage you as best, as best I can. Faith counts for righteousness. Let's try that together. Ready? Faith counts for righteousness. Faith counts for righteousness. But how can that be? Of course, we spent a lot of time on Abraham last week because he is the main example. So we're not going to rehash all the events of Abraham's life. But the question I would have is this. Well, wait a minute. Okay, that sounds good. So faith counts for righteousness. But how? How does that work? Well, through chapter 4, Paul explains this. And what he explains is what I'm referring to this morning as the gospel exchange. There is a beautiful and wonderful exchange where faith is exchanged for righteousness. But there's more to that exchange, and we're going to see that this morning. Now, I want to encourage you to really give it your full attention today because this doctrine, this teaching 
is really at the core of what it means to be a true Christian. In fact, what I'm going to explain today and from the Scriptures, what I'm going to demonstrate from the Scriptures, is that if you get this teaching wrong, you get everything else about Christianity wrong. You could go to church. You could follow Christian principles. But if you get this truth wrong, you miss everything. In fact, this, this teaching about the, the gospel exchange, this teaching is what separates Bible-believing Christianity from any other religious system that exists. Most significantly, the Roman Catholic system. So if you may be here or you're watching, you may even be a part of the Roman Catholic Church. What I'm about to explain from Romans chapter 4 today is the clear distinction between what Roman Catholicism and other similar systems teach and what the Bible actually says. And I don't say that to be harsh or mean, but to just say there is a difference. This is the difference. Romans chapter 4. And it's all about the gospel exchange. Well, let's get right to it. If you'd open your hand out and look at the heading for verses 1 through 3. In verses 1 through 3 of Romans chapter 4, what we see here is the works versus faith discussion. Works versus faith. And of course, as we saw last week, Abraham is the example. So let's just read over that again back in verse, uh, back in verse number 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? So Abraham's the example. Now, verse number two, if Abraham were justified by what? Justified by works. If Abraham was justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Abraham is the example. We spent all of last week looking at that, how his faith counted for righteousness. But here it says that if Abraham was justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. So by obviously, by obvious implication in this passage, who, what do works glorify? Who do works glorify? Who do works glorify? The self, the human, the man. Works and when we say works, it is my ability to perform good deeds. My ability to perform good deeds gives glory to me. In fact, he says here, Abraham's the example. And this is the whole works versus, works versus faith discussion. If, if it's all about my works, who gets the glory? Me. But faith, but faith glorifies who? God. Faith glorifies God. Look at verse 3 now. In verse number 3. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham, what's it say? Believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Faith Belief in, in God for Abraham 
was counted as if Abraham was what? Perfectly righteous. Faith counts for righteousness. Now, in verses 4 through 5, so that's, again, we spent a lot of time on that last week, works versus faith. But now in verses 4 down through verse number 5, what I want you to see is Paul shows us the economy of grace. He explains how all of this works. There's an economy of grace. Verses 4 and 5. Now, to him that, what's it say? To the one who does what? Works. To the person, so now he's setting up this, he's setting up this example. On the one side, you have a person who is trusting in their works. They say, hey, I do all of these works. I do all of these good things. It could be church performance, just good deeds, being a nice person. It could be all of these things. Hey, I do all of these works. Now, there is a reward for that. But it's not a good reward. It's not a reward of what you tell me. You're looking at the scripture here. What is the it's not a reward of what? You don't get any grace for that. Because grace is only for people who don't deserve it. That's what makes grace grace. It's amazing. Grace is amazing. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The only people who get grace are the ones who don't think that they deserve it. But if you put your effort and your emphasis on your works, what do you get? What is your reward in the economy of grace? What do you get? You get debt. How many of you love debt? How many of you are in debt? Oh, we won't do that, all right? Debt. Debt is not a good thing. So obviously, I say the economy of grace, and you're like, I, I can see why you're using the word economy, because it's talking about debt. But, but this obviously isn't a financial debt. It's a spiritual debt. What does he mean when he says, if you put all of your focus, if you put all of your hope on your works, all you're left with is debt, because works require what? More. Works requires more work. Work requires more work. Have you ever met somebody and had this conversation? I've had this conversation many times. I'd say, are you on your way to heaven? And I've met religious people that say, I hope so. Well, what do you mean I hope so? And they will say, I hope that I've been what? You've had this conversation too. Or maybe you were there. I hope I've been good enough. I hope that I've been good enough. What are they living under? They owe a debt. They're living, yeah, right. They're living under works, and now they are in the economy of debt. There's no grace there. There's no grace received. It's Boy, I hope I'm good enough. I hope I've earned enough. I hope I can tr I've said enough prayers. I, I hope that I've done enough, uh, received enough sacraments. I hope I've done, 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 done. And if I've done all of these things, maybe, maybe I'll be forgiven. Some, you take the Roman Catholic system, for instance, they actually then heap the debt on even more and say that, well, you have not been good enough. So after you die, you have more debt to pay. And where is in that system, where is the debt paid? In a, in a, in a place con, contrived called 
purgatory that, that the Bible never ever mentions. You say, why are you doing this? Because it's important. This is, this is we need to understand as Christians what's, as, as Bible-believing, evangelical, gospel-focused believers, we have to understand what is the dividing line to true Christianity. This is the doctrine. You either believe that you have a debt that you have to pay to God, or you believe that you live in free grace that's received by faith. Because in the economy of grace, when you are working for your salvation, you fall into further debt. The debt just piles up, piles up. If you say, in other words, you can get in one of two programs. How many of you love programs? Like, well, uh, there's option B, and there, or option A, and there's option B. Well, option A, you can step into, says, hey, it's entirely of Christ. You can stand there. Or you can choose option B. Option B is, you have to work it out. The problem with option B is, the work just keeps piling on more and more and more and more. That's what the Bible says. It's not a reward of grace, it's a reward of debt. Well, let's read on. There's another important thing here in this economy of grace. So faith brings us into grace, but works brings us into debt. Now notice this. This is fascinating. Works and faith cancel each other out. They cancel each other out. Look at verse number five. But to him that, what's it say? To him that worketh not. In other words, the person who's not putting their hope in their works. To him that worketh not, but what? Believeth. Now, does this mean that the, this person never does any good works? Is that the point here? I think, obviously, we know clearly this is, that's not the point. The point is this. In the, in the context, the one who doesn't trust in their works, but trusts in Christ, not working, but believing on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith, his faith is counted for righteousness. Whose faith? The one who work is working not. Well, you say, well, well, Ethan, maybe, I know you said there's option A, there's option B, but maybe there's option C. Maybe there's option C. You say, what's option C? Well, maybe under option C, I have faith in Christ, but then I also have to do my part. So it's kind of like a combo package. You like combo, a lot of people like combo packages, right? So there's option C. Well, according to this verse, what's the problem with option C? They're contradictory concepts. They contradict each other. Because grace and righteousness is only available not to the person who has a lot of faith in a little works, but to the one who worketh what? Not. True faith for salvation requires the absence of my own effort completely. That's why he is so clear and he goes through this so carefully. It comes to the one who works not. The opposite of working for salvation is believing. They're self-contradictory things. There is no combination package. You are either trusting yourself and your religion or you're trusting Christ. 
Paul makes it clear. But in that case, if you're trusting Christ, that person, that person is the one whose faith counts for righteousness. Now, the sequence is really important. How many of you heard that saying, don't put the cart before the horse? I'm glad I didn't get that wrong, okay? Don't put the cart before the horse. Sequence matters, right? Sequence matters. And, and the Apostle Paul, not in this passage, but in other passages, he does answer the works question. Because how many of you have had a friend, and I've had one particular friend who's actually a Roman Catholic friend, say to me, say to me, well, I just can't believe that our works don't matter at all. How many of you have had somebody have that kind of statement? You've heard that many times. Well, what's the answer? The answer is, of course our works matter, but the sequence is important. I want to show you a couple passages. So he doesn't, the point of Romans chapter 4 isn't, the, the point of Romans chapter 4 is to make it abundantly clear that works can have no part in your salvation. So then someone would say, well, what is the place of works? Works must come after salvation. I'm being very simplistic about this this morning, but that's what we need. We need to understand it in simple terms. So I put this statement on here. Under the economy of grace in your notes, it's the third statement. So just take a look at that and let's think about it. When works come first, they invalidate faith. When works come second, they validate faith. Works are actually crucial. In fact, if there are no works present in a, in a person's life, if there are no works present in a person's life, should we assume that they have faith in Christ? No. But the sequence is what is important. All right, let me give you scripture. Because that statement only is, is only as good as the scripture that backs it up. Amen? All right. So what does the scripture say? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Look at this carefully. For by grace are ye saved through what? Faith. And in case you misunderstand what that means, that is not of who? Not of yourselves. In fact, it is the gift of God. In case you're still not clear, verse number 9, it is not of works, lest any man should boast. But now look at verse number 10. For we are his, what's it say? That means we are the work, we are the masterpiece, we are the creation of God. Created in Christ Jesus. Workmanship. I think of one of my neighbors I was talking to the other day. And I didn't know this about him, but he was telling me he's retired. And he spends all of his time, not all of his time, but a lot of his time now woodworking. And a lot of you know somebody that does that. But then he showed me some pictures of his woodworking. And he builds these beautiful toys for his grandchildren. And I, you know, you hear, that, oh, that's nice, that's nice. And I looked at it, and it was like jaw-dropping kind of workmanship. I mean, just beautiful handcrafted toys and uh, that he made for his grandkids. And I was just blown away by this. He took time, and there is skill and effort and labor put in to, to make this beautiful workmanship. Well, he says here, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast, because who did the work that no one else could do? 
He did. The master carpenter. He put together a work of craftsmanship. But now why? What is the purpose? We were created in Christ Jesus unto or for the purpose of what? Good works. Our salvation that is totally apart from works was for the purpose of us producing good works. But that sequence is important because it reminds us that even when the good works happen, who's the one performing them? God through us. Not us to impress God, but God producing through us. The sequence matters. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There's another passage that describes the sequence. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Remember, this is the same author. This is Paul again. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So he says, church, you've always been one to follow my instruction. Not only when I'm there, but now I'm not there. I'm not present. So, hey, I want you to listen. I want you to obey. Well, wouldn't you say that obedience is a good work? Well, look what he says. Now much more in my absence. Next two words. After absence, more in my absence. I want you to what? Work out. I want you to what? I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I receive salvation by faith, and then I work it out. Next passage. Now, I wanted to show you Paul's passages first, because it's important to see that there's no contradiction. But the Apostle Paul teaches both salvation by faith and a salvation that is evidenced by works. Now we look at James, because he's the one that everybody likes to say, oh, see, James and, James and Paul, they disagree. No, it, the sequence follows. Look at James 2, 17 and 18. Ready? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is what? Dead. James is talking about a spoken faith that's not a real faith. In fact, in another passage in James, he says, you say you have faith? Great, the devils have faith. They say they believe in God. James is pointing to people who are abusing Paul's teaching. They're people abusing Paul's teaching, and they're saying, oh, we are saved by grace through faith, and so now we're going to just live our lives however we want. And James is just scratching his head, and he's like, you call that faith? You think that's going to save you? You think that kind of faith is going to save you? No. When there are no works, that faith that you speak of is what? It's dead. It's a worthless faith. It's not a real faith. It's not a living faith. It's a dead faith. Because it's alone. Verse 18, Yea, a man may say, A man may say, You have faith, I have works. James says, Listen, I will show you my faith by what? By my works. That is the sequence. You can read Romans, you read Galatians, you read Ephesians and Philippians, all make it very clear. We are saved completely. So, now, 
put all that in perspective and come back to, now we've got to go back to Romans chapter 4, come back to verse number 5 of Romans 4. Can you bring us back to Romans 4 and verse number 5? And now let's think about this again. But to him that worketh not, but what? Believeth. You put that in the sequence. At the, at, at, the, at the moment where I am saying, I desire to be saved, I desire to have a relationship with God, it can have zero to do with my what? Works. It must have nothing to do with my works and everything and, and, and only to do with faith in what Christ has done. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his Faith is counted for righteousness. And if that has truly happened, if a person has had true saving faith in Christ, the result will be a life of good works. So somebody says, so you're telling me I can get saved? You're telling me I can get saved and then live my life however I want and I'll still go to heaven? The answer is no. It's no. Because true salvation does not produce a life that says, I will do whatever I want and still go to heaven. That's not the life of a person who possesses true faith. That's what the Bible teaches. This is understanding works and faith. This is the economy of grace. Faith comes first, works follow. Then we come to this last part, verses 6 through 8. Ready for this point? The blessed doctrine of imputation. You're probably like, well, I wasn't expecting that one today. The blessed doctrine of imputation. Don't raise your hand, but just, you know, have you heard that word, imputation? It's a super important theological concept. You know, we've already read it. It's translated different ways. We already read it when we said that faith is what? Faith is... Faith is blank for righteousness. Faith is counted. Faith counts for righteousness. That's the word imputation. Now, well, you say, what are you talking about? Read, read with me in verse number 6. Romans 4, verse 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God, what's the word? Imputeth righteousness without works. Imputation. I put the note on your handout. A simple definition would be this. Credit applied to our account. Credit applied to our account. Anybody in here ever do a, this is, you probably would not raise your hand on this, but Anybody ever done a balance transfer on a credit card? Okay, don't raise your hand, all right? <laughs> Some of you are like, yep, a couple of times. A balance transfer on a credit card. That is where, over here, I have a credit card with $2,000 that I owe on it. Some of you are like, you know, you're savers, and you're like, this is, what a terrible predicament to be in. Okay, it's true, though. Over here, I have a credit card with a $2,000. Now, at the moment, I don't have $2,000 to pay that credit card off. 
and my promotion period is about to expire. And all of that interest is about to accrue. And now I'm starting to panic a little bit because I don't have the money and the debt is about to get worse. But aha, Citibank just offered me a wonderful new promotion. And Citibank said, for a very low fee, we will transfer the balance. We will take $2,000 of Citibank's money and we will impute it to, sorry, we will impute it to your Discover account. And so you hit a few buttons, you make a quick phone call, and magically Citibank takes $2,000 and credits it to your Discover account. And now your relationship with Discover is settled. It's good. It's all good. And you go for 12 more months until Citibank comes calling because they say, hey, we imputed that money to your account. That is imputation. Now, that's not that great of an imputation, is it? Because 12 months later, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to pay that all over again. That's not such a blessed imputation. But listen to this. The biblical doc doctrine of imputation says this, that my sin was credited to Christ's account. It's, a, it's what theologians call double imputation. It's that my sin was credited to Christ and Christ's righteousness was credited to me. He took my sin and I received his righteousness. That is a blessed doctrine. That is, in fact, it's so blessed. The word blessed means happy. It means joyful. It means wonderful. And in fact, it's so blessed that it is something to sing about. That's what David said. In fact, I, I skipped one. There's a great verse that explains imputation. It's 2 Corinthians, or that explains double imputation. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, every other false religious system is like that credit card balance transfer. Oh, I've got this debt of sin. Well, here, we'll offer you some sacraments or some, some good works, and you can pay off that sin with those. But what happens, the sin just keeps piling up, and the debt just keeps piling up. But with double imputation, Jesus said, I will take all of the sin, the past sin, the present sin, your future sin. Jesus said, I will take all of your sin and I will give you all of my righteousness. Not just enough righteousness, not a little bit of righteousness, but enough to cover any sin debt that you or I could ever, ever know. And Paul says here in Romans 4, verse 6, that David described the blessed, that blessed doctrine. David described, what do you mean David? David wrote a song. He wrote a psalm. He wrote a, an ancient hymn that talks about the joy and the blessedness of our salvation, of, of, our, of Jesus' imputation. 
In fact, it's Psalm, he quotes it here in verse number 7. He quotes it in verse number 7, Romans 4, 7, where he says this, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That comes straight from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And to, to read it in our Old Testament says this, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Many people believe that David wrote this song after he sinned with Bathsheba. And if you know the story, David spent months and months with unforgiven and unconfessed sin in his heart. He had guilt and shame and fear that he'd be uncovered. He was living with this heavy weight of debt, this heavy weight of shame. How did he make it right before God? Was there anything he could do to atone for that sin? There was nothing he could do. But he came and he confessed. He came in faith. He's an Old Testament believer. He's under the law. But it wasn't the law that saved David. It wasn't the law that forgave David. David would say that the Lord delights not in burnt offerings, but the broken and contrite heart. David came to God with a broken heart, a repentant heart, full of faith, believing that God would forgive, and God forgave. And God said, David, I will not count that sin against you. And David said, that's something to sing about. Listen, our Christian hymns are filled with, with words and lyrics about the beauty of imputation. We sang one this morning. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless I stand before the throne. This free exchange between Christ and the sinner is the heart of the gospel. And so believer, believer, you must pray for your friends and family and neighbors who claim the name of Christ but are trusting in religious systems. Are trusting, we must pray. And those of you that may, you may come to this church and you may think that coming to this church gives you some kind of standing. No, it does not. You are not a true Christian until you realize that until you take part in this free exchange where you give Jesus all your sin and he gives you all of his righteousness. And that is only and entirely by faith. There's an amazing, there's an amazing picture. And this is what I'll conclude with. The amazing picture is the robe of righteousness. The robe of righteousness. Listen to this. This is from Matthew 22. Jesus told this story. It begins with an invitation to a wedding. It's wedding season right now. But in this day, apparently it was wedding season. And a great man is going to have a wedding. And he says, I invited everybody to the wedding. And he, first he invited some important people. And do you know what the important people said? Eh, too busy. Not going to make it. Now, the man is pretty upset. He says, you know what? I'll invite everyone to the wedding. Everybody can come to the wedding. Go to the highways. 
and go to the hedges, tell them to come in, so I'm going to have a full party. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both, this is really cool, both what? Bad and good. This is, this is like designed for a Sunday school lesson. The bad guys and the good guys, they're all invited to the wedding. All of them. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, now I, did, now I want you to notice what didn't happen. He didn't say, you're good, you belong here. You're bad, what are you doing here? He didn't say anything like that. He looked in and he saw a man that didn't have on what? A wedding garment. Now, you didn't show up at a wedding without your proper wedding attire. That's the illustration. And he says in verse 12, friend, how did you come here? You got in without having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Similarities here to what we've read in the book of Romans. Remember we were in Romans chapter 3, the world is sinful before God, that every mouth would be what? Stopped. He looks at him and he says, where's your wedding garment? Where's your wedding garment? And the man said, nothing. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into the outer darkness there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, verse 14, for many are what? Called. The gospel call goes out to everyone, good and bad. But few are chosen. What's the point? Who are the ones that are chosen? The ones who are chosen are the ones who come robed in the wedding attire. You say, all right, Ethan, I'm kind of following what Jesus is teaching there. But, but what is this wedding garment? What is this robe? Well, this is why it's important to study the whole Bible. Because that's answered in the book of Revelation when we see a picture of that, that very wedding day. Go to Revelation 19. I'll, I'll, we'll turn there. Verse 7. This is speaking of what's known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, the, one of the final events in human history. When everyone is, all those people who are invited to the wedding, it's picturing a wedding day in heaven, the day where we're with Jesus. And he says, and, and they say this, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is what? It's come. There is a celebration day coming. There is a wedding day coming where all believers, all of the saints, will finally be gathered together in the presence of the Lord. The wedding celebration is coming. And his wife hath made herself ready. Verse number 8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of of saints dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne that one day in my life as just a young child i praise god that i that i heard this message as a young child that if i would take off my robe of sin and give it to jesus 
that he would put on me the robe of righteousness. I couldn't work for it. I couldn't earn it. But our robes, our garments had to be exchanged. Some of you are familiar with the song, His Robes for Mine. His robes for mine. A wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. But now to me, draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He, as though I, accursed and left alone, I, as though he, embraced and welcomed home. And the chorus sings out, I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. Now the challenge, bought by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be for Christ alone. I didn't know that we had that. The message of imputation the message of the glorious exchange for the believer is to cling to Christ. To say, you have bought my life. You have paid everything for me. I am completely yours. I am yours. We live to glorify the one who gave so much. And then the message for you who might be uncertain. You may say, Ethan, I don't know. Like I was that person at the beginning that said, if I died, I hope I've been good enough to go to heaven. Would you be willing today to finally admit, like I did one day, that you'll never be good enough? Would you be willing to admit that you are a sinner, but that Jesus loves sinners? Jesus took your sin, he took my sin, so that you could receive his righteousness. All that's left is to believe. Would you put your faith in Christ alone today? Please bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Heads bowed. Eyes closed. We come to this time of prayer. I just want to ask, is there anybody here or anybody watching that you'd say, I have never, I've never received Christ as my Savior? I don't know. I've been religious. I've tried to be a good person, but I've never understood this message, this truth that it's not about me. It's about him. If, if today is the day where you're understanding this for the first time, truly and completely, the last thing that is left for you to do is just say yes. Just say, yes, Jesus, I receive your salvation. Yes, Jesus, I believe in you. Would you do that right now? It's just between you and God, where you call out to Christ and say, Jesus, I cannot save myself. 
I ask you to save me. I receive your forgiveness. Do that right now. Trust Christ alone. Christian, as we finish with the music, you have believed in Christ. Would you just think about that, what Christ has done? Would you use this, this blessed doctrine of imputation? Would you use this as an opportunity to, to draw closer to the one who gave so much to you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the righteousness that you give us. We thank you for the salvation that is free. It's not by our works, but it's by your, your grace that we're saved. Father, we thank you that you've clothed us in your righteousness and that one day we will spend eternity with you forever. We pray the Lord that if someone here doesn't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would put their faith in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and join us as we sing the solid rock. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you in our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.